And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on a Wednesday morning before All-Star Weekend. We are recording this a day earlier than I would like to because of some family travel that I have tomorrow. So there's a million games tonight. Knock on wood. Nobody gets hurt. Nothing crazy happens. Nothing that we need to respond to happens because we ain't going to respond to it. And so it's time to do a 30-minute deep dive X's and O's preview of the Rising Stars Challenge this weekend. Kurt Goldsberry, <laughs> how are you? I am great, Zach. How are you doing? Who, who do you got in the Rising Stars Challenge team? I don't know who against Sohan. team. I'm not sure who. I'm just watching Sohan. My my Spurs friends are so excited about their rookie, uh, and he's he's got a chance to, to show the world that he's exciting, which he is. Uh, so that's what I'll be watching for in the Rising Stars Challenge. I don't even know who's playing other than uh, how they're breaking up the teams. I got to be honest with you. I don't know that. Is it world versus U.S.? Is it? I just don't know. How are we doing this now? I don't know. I, I won't be watching the Rising Stars Challenge. I do love Jeremy Sohan, though. I've become a I'm a I'm a big uh, I'm I'm curious about where his development goes. So maybe maybe I'll tune into a couple of Jeremy Sohan possessions. OK, um, trade deadlines over. Chris Herring and I yesterday did the. Um, most interesting teams and players for the rest of the season in the wake of all the tumult that happened last week at the trade deadline. I wanted to use your analytical brain, your numbers, your charts, your eye test, all of it to do something a little different, which is let's zoom in on units, halves of teams, defenses, offenses that we look at as sort of like, okay, if this team's going to be serious, this is the big question. This is the half of the court that they've got to make a leap at or maintain what they're doing at. And we bounced around some suggestions and we're ready to go. I love this. I, I think of the game as an offensive and defensive of thing. And this is a really healthy way, I think, to look at contenders, edge case teams, what's working, what's not. And we've, we've both identified a few units across the league that I think will determine how far some of these teams actually go. And they do the the two ends. It's always important to remember we're going to get into this, particularly for a team um, like Denver. We're going to talk about their defense. The two ends flow in to one another. So, for instance, Denver's half court defense is pretty decent. Um, Their transition defense is often the case with teams with slow centers is abysmal. And a lot of that is like if they turn the ball over, over a lot, they're going to give up five, six extra points a game. If they take care of the ball, they're going to give up five, six fewer points per game. But let's start with the Los Angeles Clippers who just hung 134 on the Warriors last night. They are 21st in offense, 21st, 10th in defense. I think I have, a, I have faith in their in their defense for the most part. Quick guards give them trouble. Um they've got to figure out are they just not going to play five out anymore that Mason Plumlee is on the team? Uh, do they believe in the viability of those lineups against postseason offenses? But their defense is going to be solid. Their offense being 21st um, is is puzzling and disappointing on some sort of big picture level. Uh, this team has been one of the best shooting teams in the NBA since they combined Kawhi and Paul George. Um, they are built to be a drive and kick, catch and shoot, three-point shooting machine. There are signs that that is beginning to click into place for them. But 21st on offense is 21st on offense. Um, Mr. Goldsberry, what are you going to be looking for out of the Clippers? Because they're 32 and 28. Not great. They're fifth. And even now we're 60 games into the season. Teams 5 to 12 in the West. That's eight teams 
have all of them have either 28, 29, or 30 losses. So it's a traffic jam there. And, and the last thing I'll say before I turn it over, 60 games in, the Clippers still have no lineup, not one that has appeared in more than 13 games this season. <laughs> so the science experiment rolls on, and uh, now they have Eric Gordon, Mason Plumlee, and Bones Highland. What say you? Yeah, I think you, you you outlined it well. I'll be looking for the same thing I've been looking for for multiple years now with this team, Zach. Will Kawhi Leonard and Paul George be out there when it matters? That, to me, is if the answer is yes, we got a shot. If the answer is no, you don't got a shot. Uh, and, and, and the indicators back that up. If they're healthy, which is the biggest if west of the Mississippi, this team is as good, if not better, than any other team in the West. I would take them to beat Denver right now if you told me we had a healthy Kawhi and a healthy PG. Uh, in the six, 600- oh, let, let, Let's hit the brakes right there. That's a record scratch. That's, That's a, a record, record scratch. scratch. I'm watching the numbers when these guys are both out there. They have a, an incredible net rating. I have seen Kawhi at his apex just win the playoffs. <laughs> uh, I have seen it on both sides of the court. Um, I have not seen that with Denver. I have a lot of respect for Denver. We'll talk about their defense well, later. Well, 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 they did. They did uh, embarrass Kawhi and Paul George right out of the playoffs. Not all that long ago. I know. And look, if you told me Denver puts it together and, and beats the Clippers this year, I wouldn't be shocked. I'm just saying. The numbers I'm seeing this season with Kawhi and Paul George on the floor together suggest that they are a lead on, on both ends of the court. Uh, granted, this is a small sample. And the larger point with this team is that it's it's still a DNP mystery wrapped inside of a load management enigma. We don't know what we're getting. And you alluded to that already. I'm trying to see a best case scenario here. So apologies to Denver fans. That's where my head's at out of the gate. If you're telling me we're whole, we have these nice new trade deadline acquisitions, we've assimilated them. The ceiling is a championship. That's my number one point here. The ceiling for this team is an NBA championship, uh, but it's going to take the kind of availability that they haven't demonstrated they've been able to have for years. Uh, I like their team on both ends of the court if they're whole. And again, it's unfun and it's not that interesting. The biggest question, are they going to be whole, Zach? Yeah. Um, so I'm a sucker. I'm a sucker. <laughs> I, I picked them to win the championship the second they got Kawhi and Paul George. And by the way, this is the same thing about the same thing about the Suns trade brought all this back up. All these you trade everything for a star trades. All of this four years later, do they regret giving up Shea Gilgis Alexander? Um, is 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 it a mistake that they did this? I, mean, I of course they look at Shade now and are like, ooh, it would have been nice to have hung on to him. But there is no regret. This is a team that this is a pathetic franchise that has not gotten to the conference finals until they put these two guys together. There is no regret inside this organization for whatever downside may be looming in three or four years if this group doesn't work out. There is no regret. There's pressure. There's fear. They know what the downside is, but there's no regret. There's no like, oh, my God, if we could turn back time. But there, there's one, like, could we hold Shea Gilders-Alexander out of that deal and still acquire yeah. Paul George? No, the answer is no. <laughs> Clearly, the answer is no. They got Shea Gilders-Alexander. That was, that was part of the deal. I don't think anyway. Who knows? I wasn't in the room. I've never heard this alternate history where, you know, they could, like, the Thunder were going to be flexible on that. 
And, and so you just do it and you move on. But anyway, I'm with you. I picked them to make the finals before the season. They are plus 11 per 100 possessions elite on both ends of the floor in almost 700 minutes. Now when Kawhi and Paul George are on the floor together, they did not acquire a traditional point guard. In fact, they sent away the two closest things they had to a a traditional point guard, but I like what Eric Gordon brings to their team. I like what Mason Plumlee brings to their team. Um, gives them more flexibility to play kind of smaller, quicker lineups with Kawhi at the four, or Batum at the four, or even Paul George at the four. Gives them more rim attackers. And just a couple of things, like their offense has been trending the right way. Yeah. Kawhi is very sneakily on the doorstep of 50-40-90 right now after a slow start to the season. He's averaging 22 a game on 51-39-87. Norm Powell is Norm Powell the favorite for six man of the year now. I don't know if he is the favorite. I don't have that in front of me, but but he's a good candidate. And he's, no, I'm, he's I'm just, asking is like, is he your favorite? Should he be the favorite? Is he is he my? Is should he be our? I mean, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, like who's who? Uh, people will say Brogdon. West, Westbrook's out of the running now. Westbrook, I believe, is <laughs> look. Is I said I said this three weeks ago. Stop the train on this nonsense that Russ was going to win six man of the year. He's a damaging player. He did fine as a backup. And when your team is like, can we, when your team, when the star player on your team is going on national television and wistfully describing trades that would have sent you out the door that didn't happen, you don't win six man of the year. Norm Powell is averaging 17 a game on 50% shooting. I don't know. I believe that this is a good offensive team and that that 21st figure, 21st ranking is mostly just a mirage of availability. Yeah, I, I want to point out too, I think Brogdon and Maxi are the other uh, favorites in that category. But to our audience, Zach, you and I have access to a, an ocean full of stats. We both zeroed in on that same thing. We both went to the internet and looked at, hey, what are these numbers when Paul and Kawhi are out there together? And both of us came prepared to talk about that. That is the thing here. I just want to reemphasize that. One other name I want to bring up who I love and it gives me confidence when I think about the ceiling of the Los Angeles Clippers is Ty Lu, who is one of our best playoff coaches, one of the great matchup scientists, a guy who's not afraid to tinker. And when I'm looking at their deadline moves, I'm looking at it through the lens of Ty Lu in the playoffs, a guy who, who will go small, who will go big, who will change matchups, change defensive schemes. And, and whether you're talking about Plumlee or Gordon or whatever, uh, he's got a lot to play with here. And he has proven to me that as a head coach, when he has that a lot to play with, he's almost as good as anybody in the NBA at winning a playoff series. So I almost look at it as a big three in L.A. with Kawhi, Paul George, and Ty Lue come playoff time. Yeah, in more games than not in the last, let's say, 20 games, when I've watched the Clippers, I've seen a team that gets how they have to play on offense and is playing that style with purpose. So even last night against the Warriors, the whole game was, where's Jordan Poole? Bring up Jordan Poole to screen for Kawhi and Paul George. If they hedge, get the ball moving, hit the roller, kick it to the guy on the wing whose who's defender is sagging in and drive and move and drive and move. When they get lazy, not lazy, when they get sort of purposeless or tired or just sort of they don't lack that, they, they lack that pop and the ball sticks, they're very, very guardable. They're less than the sum of their parts. They seem to understand 
the importance of that pop and that movement. So I look, the Suns are now the favorites in the West, I, I think, by a hair over Denver and everybody else. I just think the upside of those three guys together with Aiton and with enough depth once they get Shamit and Payne back and and reportedly Terrence Ross on board that I, I think it's workable. But I, I still think the Clippers can win the championship. I know I sound like an insane person um, and people are going to laugh at me if the Clippers lose in the first round and Kawhi plays half the playoff games and whatever. But I think this team can win the championship. Yeah, I agree. And I I just want to say their floor is the first round exit. And I, I don't think either of us are shocked if we see that floor. Uh, but we're not going to be shocked if you're telling me they're beating the Suns or the Grizzlies or or, or, or going all the way to the final. So look, look, here's the reality of the West. Here are teams who, if you ask them and their fans, they think we can win the championship. Denver. Phoenix, Memphis, Clippers, Warriors, Suns. Did I say Suns yet? I think so, but I, I don't remember. Oh, I did. It's I did. Been a long uh, time. Uh, uh, and Mavericks. Mavericks was the team. Now that they've got Kyrie, oh, yeah. that I think. I think. And forget. Let's just not say the other L word now because we're they're they're too far back to get in this. You mean the thirteenth place team in the? Uh, Western I think Conference? I just named six teams, if not seven, that think they can make a real one, real run to the finals. I'm I'm not as good as as you at math, but two <laughs> of those teams are losing in the first round of the playoffs if they even make the playoffs. So yeah, one of these teams losing in the first round should not be a shocker and apologies to the team that's been in third damn near the whole season. The Kings, I don't think they're in this discussion as a team they can make the finals. It, that's a really powerful point. The, add in the Kings just because there's going to be two or three very disappointed Western Conference teams at the end of the first round. I think that is, that's a very interesting point. And to me, it pairs well with, I think, one of the definitive signs of this season or the stats this season. We talked about this on text. This is one of the most the, the parody in the NBA right now is off the charts compared to where it's been in my life. Uh, the Eastern Conference has a nice litany of contenders, too. It, you know, we lived through, we covered the league when it seemed like LeBron was going to the finals every year out of the Eastern Conference. It, it, you, you know why? It didn't seem that way. He, he did. <laughs> he went every freaking year. You could see your NBA Eastern Conference preview was this LeBron's going to the finals. Uh, one of the cool things, I think, and we're, we're not NFL level parody yet. But you don't know who's going to be in the finals. And, and that's what sets a podcast like this apart in February of 2023 than February of 2018 or 19 is, dude, I don't know who's coming out of these conferences. And that manifests in a lot of different ways. It's fun for me as a fan. But, yeah, there's going to be some disappointed front offices and, and coaching staffs at the end of the first round in both conferences uh, because the league is so deep and because so many teams really believe they have a chance to win it all. Let's go east and flip ends of the floor. You mentioned the litany of contenders in the east, uh, or or the the top group anyway. And I think in in most discussions of the east, it's Boston, Milwaukee, Hardline, Philly, Cleveland. Let's talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers. Yes, thirty eight and twenty two, have won seven games in a row as we're recording this now. Um. They are first in defense, and that's been the case all season and has gotten all the press, and deservedly so. They are number one in defense with a bullet. 
And as I've said before, it's not just Mobley and Allen. The entire team, including the guards who have bad defensive reputations coming into the season, are defending their asses off. J.B. Bickerstaff should be among the three or four front runners for Coach of the Year. And all those guys, all those perimeter defenders, deserve loads of credit for sensing, I think, we can be this good if we all buy in. So let's all buy in and do the dirty work that's not fun and and doesn't get you on Sports Center and doesn't really get you into the All-Star game, but let's do it. Um, the question is the other end of the floor. Cleveland Cavaliers offense, they're up to 10th now in points per possession, 10th. And if you look at their lineup groupings, after a slow start, their four core guys are plus seven per hundred possessions with a good offensive rating. That's Mobley, Allen, Garland, Mitchell. With Evan Mobley as the only big man on the floor. So no Allen, no Robin Lopez, who who's in his reclining position on the bench, sitting on the floor every game, providing comedy. And no Kevin Love, who's recently been benched. They're plus nine per 100 possessions with about an average offense. That was the grouping, the Mobley-only lineups that were shaky early. The Allen-only lineups are fantastic, plus 12. How about the guards? Mitchell without Garland, plus five per 100 possessions. Garland without Mitchell, plus six per 100 possessions. Yeah, the fifth spot has been kind of a question, although Isaac Okoro has seized that. Um, now they just signed Danny Green. I mean, we'll see with Danny Green coming off an ACL. Karis Levert has been wildly up and down. With Love out of the rotation, they're playing smaller with Jetty Osmond and Dean Wade, your favorite accountant, at the four. Um, maybe that doesn't hold up defensively on some nights, but the numbers are starting to suggest that a team that I've said all year long is a tier below the Bucks and the Celtics all year long on this podcast, Kirk Goldsberry. I've said, I don't want to hear about how they have the best point differential in the East. I don't care their experience level, their rotational questions after the first four guys. I just, it doesn't pass the smell test that they could beat Boston or Milwaukee four times in seven games. I still would put them behind Boston and Milwaukee, but the evidence is beginning to pile up that this team is just awesome and that they are more of a threat to those teams that I have given them credit for. And they have an angel food cake schedule the rest of the way. And most <laughs> of the models, most of the models give them at least a 50, 50 shot of passing Philly and getting into the third spot. So my question to you is, why is this off? Do you believe in this offense? Why is it working? And um, have I been underrating the Cavs this whole time? Have they been a true blue contender hiding in plain sight? And I've just been blind to it. I think I wrote a piece earlier in the season where I, I, I did say they are a contender now. Um, yeah, I think they are. And over the last 10 games, let me give you the top three in net rating in pro basketball here in the NBA. The Cleveland Cavaliers, number one, with a net rating of 12.3. The Milwaukee Bucks, who are 10-0 and 0 in that stretch, not bad, uh, have a net rating of 9.9. The Boston Celtics uh, have a net rating of 5.9, despite playing like main Red Claw lineups a lot of that time. Almost uh, beat the Bucks last night without... Like lots of guys. I'm not even going to list them all. A lot of guys. It reminded me of that old school uh, Spurs heat game. I, I knew TNT. you were going to say that. I knew you were going to win Matt Bonner. Who was that? Who else was in that game? They Tiago splitter. Uh, it was, it was a, a deep cuts, but th that's a, that's a story for another time. I'm a big Cavs guy. The first thing I'll say out of the gate is no team in the NBA is, is turned it around over the last few years more impressively in my opinion, than Cleveland Cavaliers. The front office deserves a lot of credit. Hiring 
the the coaching staff, uh, drafting well, uh, trading well, obviously. Uh, I think this offense is the weaker part of this team. Oh, that's a hot take. No, the defense is that good. And you, and you started this podcast saying they're connected. Well, this defense is going to get you uh, starting on second base a lot of times with stops and uh, getting good, 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 good starts to offensive possessions. I think they have a clear weakness on offense that's in between their elite guards and their elite bigs, which is their wings. And it manifests in one particular category catch and shoot three point shooting. If you look at teams like the Boston Celtics or the Milwaukee Bucks, they are loaded with catch and shoot threats. Um, I think right now the Cleveland Cavaliers aren't, and they're ranked 27th in, in catch and shoot threes per 100 possessions. And to me, it does come back to that position you referenced, the Okoro slot, the Levert slot. In between the guards and the bigs, that's why they went out and got Danny Green. Can they get that classic 3 and D wing um, that you just have come to, to trust? I mean, we talked about the Clippers already. They have – so many great players in that sort of slot in between the guards and the wings. That's where I pick on this defense. That's the thread I pull on, on the Cavs sweater to really unfurl the whole thing. Um, so can this offense score enough on catch and shoot threes in big games to beat more complete offenses like Boston and Milwaukee? That's the million dollar question. And, and honestly, I don't think they're there just yet. Yeah. They went through a stretch maybe a month ago where it seemed like the best defenses that they faced, obviously the spacing is going to be pretty cramped when you play two bigs who don't shoot threes. And Mobley's not a shooter yet. I think one day he will be, but yeah. he's not now. Um, and, and spacing gets tight. Garland and Mitchell are both pretty undersized. So they're in there in the trees, searching out open space, got arms and all around them. Um, it seemed like defenses were successfully funneling a lot of shots to places where the Cavs didn't necessarily want those shots to come from Lamar Stevens for three, Okoro for three, Levert for three, tough contested Mobley shots, one-on-one -on -one, late in the clock, whatever. In the last month, they've somehow wiggled their way out of that. And I don't quite know how they've done it, except for both Mobley and Allen are playing maybe their best offensive stretches, at least of this season. Allen had some great ones last season in, in that last month, both playing with confidence. Allen's been like over 20 in a bunch of recent games, looks really comfortable shooting left-handed if he has to now. Um, and the two guards are just sensational and they're going to go through stretches where it doesn't really matter how good your defense is. They're going to make shots. They're shot makers. And then a has started to make enough catch and shoot threes to at least make you wonder do they have enough here? And we're all going to nitpick the fifth spot, the fifth spot three and doing, and you can't have everything all the time. Like you have Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland and two all-star level big guys. Like, like the warriors had everything when they had Durant. He's like, you don't always get everything. You part of winning is like, I, I'm not an a plus here. How do I work around it? The coolest thing about this team is they're all getting better. Like every, every key player in this rotation is on their way up. Uh, that's very exciting. Uh, and when I pick against the Cavs in a playoff series, which I think is coming, whether it's Milwaukee or, or Boston or whatever down the road, it's going to be because I don't I don't think those guys are ready for those moments just yet. I mean, in the Milwaukee Boston series last year is the first huge series I'd gone to uh, past the pandemic, and just reminded me how intense those gyms can be. That Boston environment, the Milwaukee environment. 
Uh, it takes time to get over the hump there. I love Donovan Mitchell. I, I don't think he's afraid. I don't think Darius Garland's afraid. But you're talking about beating teams on their home court in these late round um, series. And I'm just not sure they're there yet. But there's few other teams, if any, in the Eastern Conference that I think have a better 2020s ahead of them because of Mobley getting better, Darius getting better, uh, Donovan Mitchell still not in his prime, Jared Allen still getting better. Uh, and and I, I trust this front office and this coaching staff to continue to build. Uh, they are a contender. They're not a favorite in the Eastern Conference right now. A series I would love to see that the seedings it's going to be very impossible, almost impossible, barring some upsets for it to happen. I would love to see Cleveland and Philly in a seven-game series because you just mentioned the kind of relative inexperience of the Cavs other than Mitchell in the playoffs. There's something about this team and the way they play. Part of it is Garland's steady hand and his just utter fearlessness in crunch time. Part of it is Mobley just, he knows how good he is. And even when he's slumping offensively, it doesn't he doesn't let it affect his game at all, including his aggression on offense. Jared Allen has always been completely fearless. Like Giannis will dunk on him. He'll come right back the next time and try and get you at the rim. There's a certain steeliness to them mm-hmm. that is is ahead of their age. And I don't actually think they're going to be afraid of the moment in the playoffs. Now that's different than saying they're ready for Boston and Milwaukee. Cause that series last year, I, it was a bloodbath. I mean, that series was like, Oh my God, the level of physicality and intensity that is going to be new for some yeah. of them. But I think mentally they have a, just a certain fearlessness and almost, I don't want to say cockiness to them, but they're just, they don't strike me as afraid of anything. And they're under to your point about them improving. They're under zero pressure. They're under, yeah, losing in the first round right. would be disappointing. If they get by that, they're under no pressure. The Sixers, <laughs> they, they've, they've, they've got some scars. They've got some scars. They've had two seasons to try to get back to the conference finals for the first time since Iverson. Two seasons where the brackets broke exactly as you would have hoped they would break for them. Mm-hmm. And two seasons that resulted in high-profile failures. They have an all-star shooting guard, should have made the all-star team this year, James Harden, an all-time great player with a history of, you know what, in elimination games, who can be a free agent after this season. They have an all-world star center who has seen roster turmoil galore around him, from Jimmy Butler to Tobias Harris coming to Ben Simmons to Markel Fultz to on and on and on, who wants and craves to be the MVP and wants and craves to get past this hurdle of the second round of the playoffs. If the gods could give us a Cleveland-Philly conference semifinal matchup, I just think it would be so fascinating to watch how their respective players deal with, okay, it's 2-2, game five in Philly. Let's see who's who's ready. I think it would be awesome. I don't think we – it doesn't look like we're going to get it, though. I think – I love that word, steeliness. That's a perfect adjective for these – these guys and, and Darius Garland. I think we talked about this earlier this year in those non Mitchell minutes, Darius Garland is more than capable. Any team, almost any other team in the league would love to have him uh, running their offense in crunch time. He's, he's fearless, uh, but the culture there, it does. It's, it's a great, it's a great contrast with Philly. And in my notes, Zach, one of the other interesting things is like their sister city in the NBA right now might be Memphis. Another team with a really reliable defense 
a questionable offense we might talk about here. Uh, but you also use the word cocky. I would use the word cocky uh, for the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, it, it There's a, more of a quiet confidence with Cleveland that I think both you and I uh, sort of appreciate more than what's going on with the Memphis team. But I, I think those are two young teams that have some parallels in, in the playoff run this year will really be a good sort of status for where they are as an organization, which one of them is more ascendant and more reliable going into the 2020s here. What's, what's more cocky than cocky? Like, is there an adjective for like above cocky, super cocky, braggadocious? I think cocky is worse than braggadocious just because braggadocious sounds fancy. Dylan Whatever that is. I think Dylan Brooksishness is the word you're looking for. Whatever that is, that's what the Grizzlies are. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part, each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, ooh, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code LOW. That's code LOW, L-O-W-E, my last name, the name of this podcast. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Let's so let's transition to the Grizzlies because you mentioned um, defense first and defense flowing into offense. You hit it on the head with the Cavs. I'm looking at the numbers now. First, they force a lot of turnovers and they're fifth in points per possession after steals and third in points per possession after defensive rebounds. So when they get stops, they score really well. Transitioning to the Memphis Grizzlies, who are third in defense, right on the heels of the Cavs and 17th in offense and are the number one transition offense in the NBA and 22nd in half-court first-shot offense. Oh, now, that's second, a huge one. Second-shot offense is a different story. To wit, with Steven Adams on the floor, they're scoring almost 120 points per 100 possessions, which would lead the league among all teams. Without them, they're at 108, which would be damn near last among all teams. He's the number one offensive rebounder in the league by a thousand miles. He might be the best screen setter in the league. He definitely is the guy you most want on your team if there's an altercation. <laughs> um, and and when they, he's on the floor, they are rebounding 38% of their own yep. misses, which is like gruesome. It's unfair. And so the question with the Grizzlies is, has always been, okay, turnovers turning into fast break points, offensive rebounding, general chaos engine still net out at 17th in offense. Like that's not good enough. All the stuff that this is, the, this is the devil's advocate speaking. 
all this chaos, offensive rebounding, scrappy pace, craziness stuff. Doesn't that kind of fall away a little bit in the playoffs when the best teams play a little bit cleaner and a little bit slower? And aren't you going to have to have a better first shot uh, half court offense than the Grizzlies have? Which is why a team that doesn't shoot threes, doesn't make threes, in fact, doesn't make any kinds of shots other than floaters efficiently, went out and and got Luke Kennard, one of the best shooters in the NBA, at the trade deadline. But that's all they did. The big splash didn't come. Um, and now we are left to watch this team hopefully get Steven Adams back soon. Their starters have only played 128 minutes together the whole season because Bain has been hurt, Jackson's been hurt, and they have they've been out at different times. I, I still think there's a better offense in here than league average when you put all the pieces together. Um, but I'm curious to see how it looks and in particularly how they incorporate another small guard in Kennard. So what's your faith level in the Grizzlies offense? It's low. I mean, relative to Ooh. the other contenders in, in the NBA, you've taken virtually all of my notes. So congratulations. Uh, but it's my I, podcast. I, <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I will just reiterate some of these points. I think, you know, just for context, the Wizards and Hawks have a better offense in the NBA overall this year. Since our man Steven Adams has been out, uh, the, the Grizzlies offense has been terrible. They rank, uh, I think, 28th in the NBA over their last 10 wow. games. Uh, that's not a good sign. Uh, and that has a lot to do with Steven Adams, who's missed 11 games with a pretty concerning knee injury. I hope he's okay. He's one of my favorite players just to watch, especially come playoff time for a lot of reasons. You mentioned, but yes, Steven Adams is to me the reminder, the human reminder that rebounding matters in the NBA. Yeah, everybody wants to talk about all this flashier stuff, but this guy is just one of the best rebounders on the planet. He leads the NBA 5.1 offensive rebounds per game. And when he's been in the game, that's given uh, one of their signature skills, Memphis, is second chance points, transition points being the other one. When he was before he got hurt, they ranked second in the NBA, Zach, by scoring 17 points per game on second chance points. 17. Wow. Since he's been out, they ranked 23rd uh, in the NBA. That is five points a game they don't have, which doesn't seem like a lot. But, you know, that's the difference between wins and losses. I don't know who I'm supposed to trust running a pick and roll in this offense. I know this is more your bread and butter than me. Do I really trust Dylan Brooks or Tyus Jones? with the steering wheel in their hands in the playoffs. No, John Morant. Sure. Uh, but you know, I think they have issues in a couple places. One, obviously right now with Steven being out, but two going forward, the three point shooting, uh, and who's run pick and rolls in these big playoff series. So I am, I, I wish Steven Adams would get healthy sooner a, because I love watching him play. Uh, and B, because I do want to see this team whole for the reasons you just mentioned. I, first, yes, we all trust Morant. Morant's amazing. He's going to get where he wants to go. Um, any almost any possession. Bain has upped his pick and roll frequency significantly this season um, and can do a lot of different ball handling things on offense. Doesn't always have to be like clear out. It's a one. It's a two five pick and roll with Bain. He can come off a screen and turn that into a pick and roll. And if you put all that together with Jackson having his best offensive season, Adams setting these brick wall screens and getting offensive rebounds and just enough good judgment from Dylan Brooks, like you don't have to shoot every time 
the three you do not get an extra point if your foot is on the three-point line you, you have to be behind it to get the extra point um like i i think there's enough sound half-court offense there to squeeze out enough points for their defense to win the day, provided Jaron Jackson doesn't foul himself out of every. every oh, well, that was my great point. And honestly, that thing, and I went on Twitter and I defended Jaron Jackson's honor the other day when, the, he was by the a, way, that was the Lord's work. Cause I sure as hell didn't want to do that. I and had, thank to, you. Thank you. Well, let me give shout outs to our friend, Kevin O'Connor, who, who I, me and him were doing the same thing at the same time. We didn't know it. He actually got to the Twitter thing before me. And then I looked like I copied him. Good job, Kevin, by you. But I got some a, a little the same picture. He's a great defender. But one of the crazy stats of the last couple of weeks in the NBA was this line. Jaron Jackson Jr. at Boston in their loss, 20 minutes. How many fouls? Five? Six. He Six, fouled okay. out. He fouled out of the game in 20 minutes. That's not just some sort of weird stat. That screws with your rotations. If you can't reliably count on your starting bigs, to be there in their stints, all of a sudden everything is is unreliable down, and especially without Stephen Adams. Like now you're you're playing Tillman more than you want to play, and now opposing defenses are doing things at the in the rim. So yeah, Jaron Jackson's foul trouble is more than just some trivial thing here, uh, especially against the league's best offenses. I love him, but that is an obvious growth arc for him. Can he? play defense without fouling against the best teams in the Western conference in these playoffs or not. Well, and also their best non-starting lineups for years now have been Jackson and Brandon Clark together. That combination just works. It works really, really well. Those two complement each other really well. And when, when they, they need to get their full complement of all those minutes, Jackson at center by himself, Jackson Clark, Jackson Adams. They need him to play 35 minutes a game in the playoffs. And there's just no evidence he's going to be able to do that. Um, he also would be, I am curious how often they're going to play Morant or I guess Jones, you know, one of their point guards, let's just say Morant, Bain and Kennard together because they're going to, they've already tried it with their backup units in Kennard's first game with them. It's just it. No matter how you slice it, they're small. If they have three yep. guards on the floor and one of them isn't Dylan Brooks, they're going to be small. If you have Jackson and another big behind them, that could be workable because you know they're going to all those guys are going to be hunted. You can only hunt one guy at a time, but all those guys are going to be targets. Bane less so than the others. If you got that dude flying around blocking shots behind them, you got it's worth experimenting to see if you can get away with it. And boy, would that open the floor and, and add another movement shooter to the Grizzlies offense. That that would be interesting. I, I'm a believer that their offense will at least sustain in the playoffs. Like, I don't buy that it's going to get worse in the playoffs because that environment is worse for how they play. But sustain at league average is probably not good enough to get where they think they they can go. That's what we're talking about here. With these lists of teams, you know, average in the regular season, that's okay, right? not when you want to try to win the NBA championship, whether you're talking about offense or defense. Um, I love Jaron Jackson. I think, like you say, he gives, he's the best deodorant in the paint. I mean, he can, Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Like uh, I think that's an old John Madden quote, you know, winning is the best deodorant, but great rim protector is, is great rim protectors are the best deodorant in the NBA. If you have a, a, a Kevin Garnett or a Rudy Gobert or Jaron Jackson in their prime, now Nick Claxton has to be added to that list. 
man, you, your your guards can get away with a couple things and 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 breakdowns that that other teams like, for instance, the Denver Nuggets. Act if you have a breakdown on the edge there, you don't have that free safety coming in to deodorize uh, that error at the restricted area. And I think that's a big thing the Grizzlies can hang their hat on, provided the dude is actually in the game and not in foul trouble. Let's stay in the West and switch ends of the floor again. The most confounding team that I can recall in a long time, the most confounding single season team, the 29 and 29 defending champion Golden State Warriors, who after losing to the Clippers last night without Steph and without Wiggins, are 7 and 22 on the road and 22 and 7 at home. They are plus 5 points total, like 5 points. Like like Gary Payton the second scoring average, 5 points over the break even mark for the whole season. That's their season long scoring margin. They're 12th on offense, but that's not what we're going to talk about because we know this team can we know what they can do on offense when they got everybody out there. They're 19th in defense. And I just don't understand how or why. Can you help me explain why the Warriors are so bad on defense and how they can repair this before this season just slips away from them? Yeah, most people expect me to talk about numbers. This is not a numbers thing for me. I think these guys are tired. I, I don't think they have the togetherness that they had last year. And we can allude to obvious things that have happened there. Uh, and, and people could say that's too touchy feely. Fine. Nobody wants to hear me talk about vibes, but to me, that's where it starts. The tired, the age, they have thinned out this rotation quite a bit. There is no Gary Payton. There is no auto Porter. Uh, maybe we'll get to Gary Payton later, but that's where it starts. Uh, defense, you have to have a lot of will. Draymond was quoted last night as saying, we don't have the will to do what needs to be done on that end of the court. Well, they also don't have the Andre or the Gary or some of the names that we're, we're used to seeing when we think about, you know, and for, for those who don't remember, like when this team wins titles, they're the best defense or one of the best defenses in the NBA, Zach. And this is not that. Um, and the other thing I'd say is if you think you can just mail it in during the regular season and go make a run in the finals, you are a generational team. Uh, I think the last team that you and I can remember that really did that might be one of the Shaq and Kobe Lakers teams uh, that, that sort of mailed it in and then showed up and just destroyed everybody in the postseason. Maybe this team can do that. But right now, the defensive indicators, their ability to protect the paint, some of their signature indicators aren't there. And they show up in the numbers, but to me, it is just they're tired, uh, they're thin, uh, and they don't have that sort of edgy camaraderie that this defense, when I think back to the glory days, had. I still don't get it. I mean, I get what you're saying, Draymond. What you're saying is they they made a championship run. They, well, you talked you talked about this. Sorry to interrupt, but you talked about this last night, right? Like or the last night's game. Who did they pick on? You know, Jordan Poole. Yeah, and I feel like there's there's just some loose, weaker links in this defense, with all due respect to Jordan Poole, that didn't exist when we're talking about them having a lot of um, elite defensive seasons. So, you know, well, the, but he was on the team last year. I know, and he was on the team last year, and that is a, a strong counterpoint at very least. But I feel like those kinds of weaknesses aren't getting covered up for this year like they were. Last year, and, and when I think of the glory days of the dynasty, I don't think of any weak links in the defense, really. 
you know, it was really when they got off of David Lee that this thing started. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I think Draymond, Andre Iguodala, Sean Livingston, uh, Clay Thompson, the list goes on. Like these guys are elite defensive individuals that came together at a high level. I, I just don't see it this year. Um, they need Gary Payton. Honestly, they need Gary Payton in that rotation. Well, we know Clay is is not the same level defender he was pre-injuries, but again, they won they won the title last year. Um Wiggins has not been consistently available for 2 months now. He's he's played a few games here and there. Um Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about, like the Warriors had a perfect basketball team and now boohoo, they have a normal good <laughs> basketball team and they have to like figure out how to problem solve a little bit. Um I just look at these numbers and I just I'm still I'm still just flummoxed. So they stop in stopping playing Wiseman and to a lesser extent Moody, they've eliminated the kind of low hanging fruit. And if you look at their lineup data and the on off ratings of all their best players, they all have pretty good numbers, even defensively. Their starting lineup is still maybe the best lineup in the entire NBA with there are three best defenders on the floor at the same time, all of whom start Draymond Wiggins and Looney. They're allowing 106 points per hundred possessions. That's better than the best defense in the league by like three points. The Draymond at center lineups have not been as good as they have been in the past. They're kind of league average on defense, still netting out a slight positive because of their offense. And that's interesting to me because maybe Draymond with this particular set of players isn't up to the same level of heavy, I can do everything and be everywhere lifting as he used to be. I am interested if Gary Payton gets healthy in time to be a big part of this team, if and how much we see Curry, Mm. Payton, Clay, Wiggins, Draymond as the new sort of Draymond at center group, because I think it was very telling how reluctant Steve Kerr was to play the pool party lineup which is Steph Poole, Clay, Wiggins, Draymond in the finals last year and even in the conference semifinals and how quickly he went away from starting it after being like, this is what we're going to do now. We're going to start Jordan Poole. And like three games later, he's like, you know what? I think we kind of need Kevon Looney. I just, Gary Payton's out for a while after a, a fiasco of a trade. And, you know, that that's the spot that was Otto Porter in the right. finals, that Gary Payton spot last year. Otto Porter is a, a bigger player uh, and a better shooter so a better fit there, but that's a lineup that's it's in the back of my head. It's I love it too. And if you're telling me that the six seed or the seven seed Warriors, whatever, and they're coming in relatively healthy with Gary Payton, with Wiggins, and with Curry, who are three players that they haven't had together this year, I'm scared. This team is still scary. <laughs> they could still put it together. Uh, and I, I love that idea, that lineup. One of the things this organization tried to do in the last few years is is something that no organization has really ever done. Hand off a dynasty to a group of young bucks in development. And one of the things I think with this defense or with this team's record overall is that that transition to Kaminga, Moody, Wiseman, Jordan Poole, it hasn't gone smoothly. Those are key pieces of this rotation, and they're not putting up numbers that we would expect from the Golden State Warriors dynasty. Uh, It's unsurprising to any students of the game who've watched teams like my beloved Spurs try to hand off the dynasty too. It never really happens. Um, These things come to an end. And and yeah, the the pool moment, the minutes have been a disaster on offense. 
and there is no Andre Iguodala. There is no Sean Livingston. There are no like that that foundation where it's so reliable. There's just weaker links throughout this rotation than there was when they were firing on all cylinders. Um, yeah, and I think the loss of Otto and, and Gary Payton can't be understated uh, from where they were last year, especially on this defensive markers. You will find people in the league, and let me be clear right now, I am not one of them, but I am the opposite of this person. But you will find people in the league who look back at last year's Warriors championship run and don't quite call it a fluke, Mm. but call it sort of like they caught lightning in a bottle in terms of the Suns fell apart, the Clippers were injured, the Jazz fell apart, the Mavericks and Grizzlies weren't ready, and the Celtics got to the finals exhausted and banged up and turned the ball over and were a horrible matchup. And I disagree with all that because that Warriors champ, that Warriors team is awesome. The Mavericks wiped the floor with the Suns and the Warriors wiped the floor with the Mavericks in five games. You got to beat the Celtics. They beat the Celtics. But I think people will look at this season and revise what they think about last season. And I don't I don't think that's fair. I think that Warriors championship is a true blue, awesome, awesome championship. But you will find people who are like looking at them now at 29 and 29 and asking, were they really that good? I think they were which is why I'm so puzzled by this season and puzzled by the fact that I look at all the data, even like this number I keep coming back to with DiVincenzo, Poole, and Kaminga on the floor and no Steph. They're plus four per 100 possessions with a good defense. Like all their core lineups seem to be working pretty well and they can't put it together and they can't win any road games. And maybe that is a sort of like care factor harmony factor thing we're gonna we're gonna go on the road and win maybe it's just that they haven't had everyone available enough I don't know what it is but I still look at this team as more than boy I'd be scared to face them in the first round I still look at them as they're a championship level team if they can just put it all together and I'm just baffled that they can I don't understand why yeah I think well welcome to the rest of the NBA I think like the Warriors first title famously I think it was Doc Rivers who said hey, that one shouldn't count. They got lucky. But, you know, you talk about the Raptors ring in 2019. Obviously, there's people who say, oh, they got lucky. You know, the the bubble title for the Lakers the next year. Oh, that one really doesn't count. Like, you know, the Bucks in 21, I'm sure there were people like, oh, that does that doesn't count. Uh, but, yeah, that that ha- that's going to happen. That team was a championship team. No asterisks here. Uh, and. I still think the old NBA slogan, again, I'm not talking about numbers, so forgive me, never underestimate the heart of a champion. We know what kind of vibe that that team, when they come into a game against Memphis (laughs) and all the bright lights are on, we know what energy they're going to bring. So if they're healthy, if they're bringing a healthy Steph Curry, by the way, uh, who hasn't been healthy very much this year, healthy Andrew Wiggins, healthy Draymond Green, healthy Clay Thompson, nobody wants to see that. And people like you and me, if they're under underdogs in a first round playoff series are going to have a real tough time picking a team like the Kings or uh, who else would it be? I mean, the, the nuggets, uh, who, who that's well, we, going to be needed to be is Memphis. We need somehow <laughs> to have a Memphis warriors oh, first round series. Up. Sign me up. Yes. But you and me and, and the rest of our community, who are we picking there? That's going to be a really telling moment. And to me, I just bring that up because that speaks to your point. I'm scared of this team when it matters most. Well, that's what you're saying is 
you can look at all of these teams that they beat in the playoffs last year and they looked ragged and tired and unready or jittery or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that's the point. It's really, really hard. You have to play a hundred something games. You're going to be ragged. You're going to be tired. You might even be jittery. The Warriors won't be jittery because they've played a million finals games, but they're going to be tired. They're going to be ragged. They're going to be feeling pressure. And if you can't respond to it at an absolute optimal A plus level, you're not going to win. And they can respond to it in an optimal A plus level because that's the DNA they have as a team. That's the experience they've earned as a team. And the playoffs make you look ragged. It can be ugly. It's not always going to be the 2014 Spurs moving the ball around, just slicing and dicing people. It's physical. It's ugly. You're 110 games into the season, whatever you are, 105 games into the season. You're tired as all hell. You just want the damn thing to be over. You got to find a way to win. And the Warriors have proven when other teams get in their own heads or succumb to fatigue or don't trust each other in key moments, whatever it is, whatever you want to pin their undoing on, it doesn't happen to the Warriors. Well, last thing you brought up the, the 14 Spurs. Remember the next year, Zach, they lost in the first round. It's hard. It's tiring. It is, especially on older legs. And, and like it or not, Clay's legs, Draymond legs, Steph's legs have a lot of miles on them. Uh, and I think that's one thing we're seeing this year in the regular season. Um, and really, I'm going to be watching to see if this team can get healthy and get their legs under them. Because there's very few healthy NBA teams I would pick over the Warriors right now in a seven-game series. And they've generally, they're obviously without Curry for a handful more games at least when the All-Star break ends. And I actually think they've done, they're, I think, one game under now without Curry in in a, I think it's like 17, 18 games. It's a lot of games. That's pretty good. Like that's That's encouraging to me that they can tread water without Steph. Um, I, I, they're going to be like 40 and 40. And I'm going to be on this podcast being like, the run is coming. They're going to put together a run at some point. There's two games left in the season. They're going to put together a run. I'm going to, I still think they're going to put together a run. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. For the ones who get it done! Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Let's go to the team that won the championship um, before them, the Milwaukee Bucks 
who beat the uh, JV Celtics last night to go to 40 and 17. They are tied with Boston in the loss column, one game back in the win column for the number one seed in the East. And there is a fun three team race shaping up between Milwaukee, Boston, and Denver for the number one overall seed in the playoffs, yeah. if you care about such things. And the Bucs have the number two defense in the NBA. We know Giannis, Brooke Lopez, good luck going at the rim. They're going to be an elite defense. They don't give up as many threes as they used to. They're an elite defense. They're going to ugly up the game. It's completely unpleasant to play against them. Giannis will very rudely throw your crap back at you at the basket over and over again. Um, 22nd in offense yep. is an orange flag, if not a red flag. Um, it's orange. And, and for a lot of the, the season, it's just it's just been ugly, like ugly to watch. And all season long, I've I've said, I don't really care until Middleton comes back because he's their most important ball handler. He's back now. He's only played 108 minutes with Drew Holiday and Giannis Antetokounmpo. Looked okay. Chris doesn't look quite the same to me. He looks a little better every game, shooting 29% on threes. It's They've never been, even in their championship year, a particularly artful offensive team. They've been a more bludgeoning offensive team. Um, but they bludgeoned their way to a ring and they have, I think the best player in the NBA or neck and neck with Durant. What do you make of this offense? How is it just sort of like, it'll be fine when they all get more minutes together. Obviously they just got Crowder. Like what's your concern level here? Cause it's been a strange, uneven season. It has been strange and it's been uneven and it's been out, without speaking of 22, uh, Chris Middleton, it's been with, without him. I mean, here's a stat for you and it's not an advanced stat. Uh, but with Chris Middleton in games in 2023, the Milwaukee Bucks are 11 and 0. That's a stat, and I that's think that, that's a stat. <laughs> I, I I've been saying all year, and I'm not alone. Yeah, the offense sucks, but they don't have their all star jump shooting guy. Okay, so I'm going to take that guy off of any of the other top 10 offenses in the league and tell me what to expect if I'm taking the, the, one of the all star scorers out of out of a, a lineup. For years, it's been Giannis pressuring the rim and Chris pressuring the mid-range and shooters pressuring the edges. They didn't have Chris, uh, but now they do. He's working his way back. In their last 15 games, they're 13-2. and two. Their offensive rating is 118. That's very good. I love Drew. I love Chris. I love Giannis. I love Brooke. They have enough shooting. They added Jay Crowder. On my concern level, it's very little concern because the defense is going to, you can set your clock by the defense. I think if this team is whole, they're the equivalent of a top 10 offense. That's strong. Top 10 offense. Yeah. I think that's where they are. Tell me I'm wrong. No, I, I like it. Um, I like it. And I think there are signs that you're right. They've scored well with Middleton. Just with Giannis and Drew Holiday, they're plus 10 per 100 possessions for the season. And Drew Holiday missed time earlier, too. I think Crowder... Now, we'll see how Crowder looks. Yeah, but fair. Crowder and, and the return of Bobby Portis is going to be a huge deal for them because I know he's slumped from three point from three point range after a hot start to the season. He can shoot. We know he can shoot. And he can... He provides these little sort of like... Why? Why are you pointing? What? What? What is your? What is your? I've forgotten about. Yeah, Portis is like one of their most important like players. He's a, he's a versatile piece in their better offensive team when he's available. 
he provides those buckets that every championship level team needs, which is like, all right, it's late in the second quarter. Everyone's kind of tired. Nothing's working. Can we just throw it to someone and get a workable shot here? And like, that's what Bobby Portis has become for their team, particularly yeah. in Middleton's absence, who Middleton's their best guy for that. Um, so, so they have the following seven guys that I really, really, really trust in the, in the highest level playoff environment. Giannis, Middleton, Holiday, Lopez, Portis, Crowder, TBD, but I trust him, and yeah. Connaughton. That's seven. I did not mention Grayson Allen, who I think will remain in the starting lineup once Chris Middleton comes back into the starting lineup. I think Connaughton will go to the bench just because they like the, the shooting factor. I trust-ish Grayson Allen. He's going to get picked on defensively, but I trust him. That, that, that'll get you to eight. And after that, it's like whatever we get from Ingles, who's looked pretty good, slow, but pretty good. Javon Carter and Wes Matthews is kind of gravy. That's enough guys to me. And the Crowder thing is interesting because if they want to go with Giannis at center, it's always that's always a tough decision for them because that's the sexy lineup type that everyone is fascinated by. But Portis and Lopez are two of their five or six best players. And For putting sure. Giannis at center means they're both on the bench. But with Crowder, they now have access to a lineup of Middleton, Giannis, Holiday, Crowder, Connaughton, which might be the best Giannis at center lineup potentially that they've ever had. Hmm. And then you throw in the Giannis-Portis combination with Lopez on the bench. That's always worked really well. Giannis Lopez, that starts, that's worked really well. Sometimes they play all three of them together. I don't particularly love that, but they've had some success with it. They're, they they have enough depth and flexibility to put good two-way lineups on the floor of all different shapes and sizes if Crowder is ready to give them somewhat expected production. You can't roll in to the playoffs on vibes alone, Zach Lowe. You cannot just roll in on vibes alone I'm interested in whether Jay Crowder can get his legs back. This dude has not played basketball in a long time. And, and NBA basketball is very difficult if he's able to be the Jay Crowder that you and I have seen before he gives this team. I love the way you frame this. They need to get to an eight or nine man rotation. He's a key part of, of whether they can get there at his ceiling as a spacer and a defender he really gives this team a championship piece uh, that they didn't have without him at a ceiling. Now, there's a world, though, where he he's not the Jay Crowder. He hasn't played. He hasn't played. Uh, there's also and, a world where he shoots like two of 30 from three in a three-game stretch. That's another great thing with him uh, to, to, to point out. So, you know, in a weird way, role players, we've seen it before, ask the Celtics with Grant Williams last year. Players like that can win you games when you need them. Uh, and will Jay Crowder be there? It's a big question because, yeah, Javon Carter, nice players. Do you want them in the in the game and in, in closing time? Ultimately, I want to talk just a little bit more about Giannis. This dude's the best player in the world. And it's not just because he scores with about as well as anybody in the league. There are a couple of people better statistically. But his defensive, like Evan Mobley, he enables this defense to have two room protectors on the court at any given time when Brooke is out there or somebody else. That's a luxury. Uh, he is one of the finest defensive rebounders in the world. 
uh, very few people can win you a game, score 50 in a finals game, and also get 20 rebounds in a playoff game. <laughs> to me, the story of the Bucks still revolves around him, and all of these pieces need to be there. Chris is very important. Jay is very important. Drew Holiday is very important. But the story is, for me in the Eastern Conference, is nobody else has Giannis. And that's why I still have them at their ceiling better than teams like Boston, Philadelphia, or Cleveland. Best paint scorer since Shaq, Zach. But look, I mean, I mean it's a pretty simple game. It's a pretty other, simple game. I, I I kind of agree. I don't top ten. I think they probably are like the ninth or eighth or seventh or eleventh best offense in the NBA. And that's all they need to be. They don't need to be scoring like the Kings and the Nuggets with the way they play defense. I think they're that's probably right once they get whole. They've also all season long been atrociously unproductive in transition. Like for a team that wants to run, mm. all the efficiency numbers are like they're the worst scoring team in transition. I actually look at that as kind of a good sign for them. Like that's just weird. It doesn't make any sense to me and will probably correct itself when that dude starts loping full speed down the floor. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Boston. You wanted to talk a little bit about Boston's offense, and I will let you do that in a second. I picked Milwaukee to win the championship before the season. Hmm. I believe in sticking with my picks. That's my pick. That was my pick. That is my pick. That's the pick. I made the pick. That's the pick. I picked Bucks Clippers in the finals. 50 whatever games in, 60 games in. Boston is the best team. Boston is the best team top to bottom, I think, still in the NBA. Phoenix is going to have a shout at that, and so is Milwaukee. And and people are going to read a lot into last night's game where Boston without Tatum, Brown, et cetera, et cetera, Smart, Horford, almost beat the Bucs on the road. I don't read too much into that. Like, weird stuff happens in the yeah. NBA. But I do think Boston has established itself as like, we're just like, over. if we played 300 games, we'll have the best record. We'll be the best team. If this were the Premier League and you just played out the season and whoever won the most games won, I think it would be Boston. I picked Milwaukee to win the title because I just have that much respect for Giannis. I think he's still the most fearsome player in that series above Tatum and has a sort of will and ferocity that wears on you over two weeks of trying to deal with him coming at you and, and enough around him to make up for the talent gap one to 12 that I think does exist between Boston and the Bucks. I think they have enough star power at the top and enough depth that fits around Giannis and the, and the two other stars on the team that, that they can beat Boston in a seven game series. They almost did it last year. I don't know yeah. how much to read into that without Middleton. Um, but if you are going to sit here and tell me, it's clearly Boston. Boston's the best team. All the projection systems say Boston. I, I can't really disagree with you, but I think the Bucks have enough to win that series. I don't know who I'd pick when it comes down to brass tacks, but I picked the Bucks to win the title. I am curious to see why you wanted to bring up Boston's offense on this podcast, because I didn't bring up Boston anything because they look pretty rock solid to me on both ends of the floor, but, but make, make the case that they belong here. Yeah, I, I, I will. And I just want to go back to one thing, and I already brought this up. When I was in those those gyms with Boston and Milwaukee in the playoffs last year, I remember saying to people around me in the media section, I was like, it feels like we're going to be here watching these two teams for a few years in a row uh, because they are just so good. Uh, and I feel like they're going to be on a collision course like a lot of NBA history has these rivalries. And that was 
that was a great example. And it feels like we're going there again this year. If I had to pick the Eastern Conference Finals, I don't think I'd be alone in picking these two teams. And the and fact I, that they both wear green is confusing to me. My daughter sometimes, said that too. Yeah. Sometimes last I night. like last night, one's wearing black, one's wearing green. I'm like, who's who? What's going on? Anyway, but yes, I well, let me you trigger that. you. Let me trigger you because I I your fans deserve a, a, a Zach Lowe rant. Uh, what were those Bucks uniforms in that court last night? What were we watching? I, th- that was nothing green about it. No, it was blue. There were blue. What, what kind of were they wearing? Were the Bucks wearing black and the court yeah. was blue? I don't, I don't look. Nobody, I've said many times, the Celtics should have to start games trailing 5 0 when they wear their black jerseys. That's how, that's how much of a crime against basketball history and art those jerseys are. You should just have to, we want to wear our black jerseys so we can gouge our fans out of buying this thing that they're never going to wear because nobody looks good in a freaking jersey. Um, yeah. You Have should... you seen how well the Sam Hauser jersey is selling in Southie, though, Zach? You got to look at the black Sam Hauser jersey sales. But you're right. And I love this. I, it's one of my favorite Zach Lowe rants. The green Celtics uniforms are the equivalent of like the Notre Dame football uniform. And they're just like not. <laughs> not it's the pinstripe. It's the I hate to say this as, a, as someone who firmly believes the Yankees are evil. It's the pinstripe Yankee jerseys. That's it's the same. It's the same thing. Why are you messing around with anything? Where are the white ones every once in a while? That's another classic look. That's it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. But yeah, the jersey sales department at the Celtics business side has has a different predicament. I will give you the reason. I think one of the more interesting things, and I do have a lot of respect for the Celtics team. Certainly not mad at anybody picking them to win. They have been great all year. But I think the Missoula era is a little bit different than the Adoka era. They've invited in a little character known as variance into their lives. They've fallen in love with three-point shooting, and, and that's manifested this season. Uh, when they came out of the gates, they looked like the best offense in the history of pro basketball because all of those threes were going in. All of the role players were shooting 40%. Well, guess what? Regression of the mean happened in December and January, and they looked like an average three-point outfit at best. Their offensive efficiency collapsed. Look, they have made a deal with this sort of variance devil when they shoot 40% from three this season, they look unbeatable. They're 21 and 0. When they shoot 32% from three, though, which has happened quite a bit, they're 6 and 10. So if they encounter a cold stretch, and this isn't unusual in the three-pointer, if they if they hit a cold stretch or a cold game in a game seven, it, they've invited this sort of rocket's faith rocket's fate in uh from that classic game seven if you're going to rely that heavily on threes like right now i was just looking at this as a crazy stat uh this month they're averaging 57 points a game from threes and 45 on twos okay so if they have these cold nights will they be able to turn on the two-point switch and get to the rim uh, and trust their two-point offense to pick up the slack i'm not sure about that against a great defense like Milwaukee or Cleveland. That's why I wanted to bring them up. The Missoula era has been a success by any measure coming out of that chaotic event. But this reliance on three-point shooting, as we've seen the roller coaster already this season, scares me a little bit. And can I trust their offense against those elite defenses in the postseason? Yeah, I mean, they're also not a big free throw team. They're not a big offensive rebounding team, although Robert Williams III changes that equation. They have been taking care of the ball this year. Uh, they've been a top five turnover, fewest turnover team for a lot of the season. They're down right. to sixth now. Um, that was obviously their undoing. Killed them. Not just turnovers, but just sort of like they would just let go of the thread. They would lose the plot, as some people like to say on offense. Like they they would just sort of let 
Jordan Poole or great, not Grayson Allen. They kind of, they, they got, they got Grayson Allen. They got, they got him good, but they would kind of let Jordan Poole just hang on defense too many possessions. Be like, dude, why are you attacking Wiggins when that guy's over there? Just call his guy up for a pick. They would just lose the, lose the plot. I think they're better about that this year. It's going to be a fun last 25 games. A lot of questions, a lot of movement at the deadline. Um, and as, as, as you know, like a lot of teams, now we may look at, we may look in a month and think, boy, all that talk about how many teams could win the title. It really was just like Phoenix, Denver, Boston, Milwaukee, mm-hmm. or, or it may go the other way where the first round is just like raucous. And all of a sudden the Suns are in game seven against the Mavs or something in the first round. It could, it could go a lot of different directions. It's going to be fun. Again, it's five, six, seven, eight, nine contenders. But yeah, it's going to be fun, except as you pointed out so astutely, and I'm going to remember this from the podcast, there's going to be very disappointed fan bases and coaching staffs, especially in that Western Conference. Nobody thinks they're a first-round exit right now, uh, but there will be four of them uh, and, and some teams that that end very disappointed on, on that Western bracket. Well, and that's when people project ahead to free agency and summertime trades and all that. That's what you have to remember is you can do all the projecting you want in January and February about how team X has cap space and all this optionality. When teams underachieve grossly in the playoffs or overachieve a lot in the playoffs, it can change their, it can change their entire offseason outlook. A bad one bad playoff series can break apart a team can take a team out of contention for superstar X. Like it, a lot of it comes down to the playoffs, particularly for teams who have, a ton at stake, as we talked about earlier with Philly, for instance. Kirk Goldsberry, you have any good all-star weekend plans? Just laying back and watching. I'm going to be home in Austin, and uh, I, I hope all my friends who are in Utah have a great time. I'll be watching the three-point contest. Looks like the best event this weekend. It's my favorite. Um, it's always been my favorite event. I think I knew that. You have a pick? Who do you think is going to win? It's always the hardest thing to pick. You never I don't know but who's in it. I can't remember. All I know is the field for that thing is a lot better than the field for the dunk contest, which I will watch no matter what. I love that. Even a bad dunk contest. I, I still, it. yes, it can take forever. I still like a bad dunk contest. What's not like a guy misses 10 dunks in a row and you're like, all of a sudden you're watching this human drama unfold in front of you. Like, is he going to keep, is he going to keep trying to like um, millions and millions of people are just watching this one guy. Yeah. It's like it's like a technical free throw, but you have to shoot 50 of them and you're a bad free throw shooter. It's just it goes on and on. Anyway, well, this this won't be Dominique and Michael at Chicago Stadium. This is going to be Mac McClung and uh, you know KJ Martin or whatever. But here we go. KJ Martin. That's my pick to win the dunk contest. I don't even know who else is in it because I, I just Shaden, Shaden Sharp's not in it. Who uh, I. Whoever else is in it, KJ Martin is my pick to win the dunk contest. Who's in the three-point shootout? I'm just going to make a blind pick in the three-point shootout. Uh, Damian Lillard wins yeah. the three-point shootout. I got Damian as well. I don't. I I know Herder's in it. I know yeah. Simons is in it, but he got hurt last night. Tatum, I believe, is is the, is maybe the highest profile player in it. I'm you, taking Damian. You Did would you think. Da- you yeah. would think I would know the field before making a prediction, but I'm taking Lillard. All right, Kirk Goldsberry, read him at ESPN.com. Listen to him occasionally at the Hoop Collective, occasionally here at the Low Post. Look at his beautiful graphics. I have one hanging up on my wall back here, the Naismith International Park. Uh, Thank you, Zach. By Sprawl Ball, which we've done a whole podcast about. I have it somewhere in my my shelf somewhere. Kirk Goldsberry, you have um, 
changed basketball discourse for the better over the last 10 years. And it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Zach. Have a great weekend. A good all-star break, my dude. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.